Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this episode of Risk, you'll hear James Adomian. There's a picture of me sitting on Santa's lap when I was 11 years old. 11 years old. Wait, way too... Like, 10... See, you guys do it. You guys were like, 10, yeah. And then 11, you were like, what the fuck? You'll believe anything. That and more, but first... Want to take just a moment to remind you that with the holidays here, you simply don't have the time to go to the post office with the traffic and the parking. It's going to be packed with everyone mailing gifts and packages. So do what I do. Use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. Everything you do at the post office, you can do right from your desk with your own computer and printer. You can buy and print official U.S. postage, print for any letter or package the instant you need to. And then your mail person picks it up. It's so easy. We use Stamps.com at Risk in the Story Studio, and you should too. And right now you can get this special offer when you use our promo code RISK. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now here's the show.
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Ira Ironstrings behind me now. Well, my fine, four-fendered, and feathered friends, this is the first Risk episode of 2014. It is also the last of our holiday based episodes. You know, we got a ton of stories. We got some stories that were like, you know, so-and-so burst in and murdered 13 people on Christmas morning. (laughs) So, well, we're gonna put those off for now. All right? We're sticking with the happy stuff for now, and we'll, we'll give you Christmas massacres later in the year, when you're listening to the podcast while jogging through the park with your puppy, or playing footsies at the beach. But today, we are just going to keep it fun, and you'll take it, and you'll like it. Bird manure guy. Not not the best insult, bird manure guy. If you want it, you can have it, but I probably won't return to that one. In a little bit, we are going to hear from the remarkable Mr. Satya Baba from New Girl and Scott Pilgrim. And Midnight's Children. But before that, we're going to hear from Will Luria, who is an actor, director, producer of all kinds of comedy and improv shows in the Boston area. Will told me this one over Skype just a little bit ago, and it made warm things happen within my intestines. (laughs) In a good way. In a good way. This will take us back to when Will was just 15 years old. We call this one... Kid Kringle. Christmas has always been a very special holiday for me. Ever since I was a little kid, I've enjoyed the tradition, the pomp and circumstance, if you will, the music. In fact, up until about two minutes ago, I was listening to Christmas songs for about eight hours. That's how big of a deal this is for me. I try to impart that joy to anyone and everyone I can. And I'll never forget the day that Christmas almost bypassed our house altogether. It was in 1990. Uh, I was 15 years old. This was on the, in the south side of Chicago. I grew up in a neighborhood called Pilsen. Pilsen back then was pretty rough. There were still gang shootings and drug deals and all of that stuff going on just outside our window. You could sit at my bedroom window and just see at least a couple of illegal activities per hour. And so um, I felt because of that, having a meaningful Christmas was really important. Now, the one thing I had working against me is that Christmas didn't really mean as much for my parents at the time. It kind of was a last minute thing. Like Christmas Eve, not even like as part of tradition, let's put everything up, just like 
We've got a few hours to put everything up. Let's put everything up. Let's go out shopping right now. I mean, I have very clear memories of my parents running out to downtown Chicago Christmas Eve at about 5 p.m. to get last minute gifts. I mean, that's just the way our family functioned when it came to Christmas. For me, it was kind of a bigger deal. It required a lot more thought and preparation, right? So this Christmas, again, 1990, we were nearing uh, the big day. We were nearing the 25th. It was about the 22nd of December. I was already uh, out of school for winter break. My younger brother, who was nine at the time, was also on his break. And our youngest brother, who was four at the time, uh, still wasn't going to school. And he still very much believed in Santa Claus. So uh, another quick thing about our living situation at the time, we owned a building in the south side of Chicago. It had 14 apartment units and four storefronts. Uh, it had a, a barber shop, it had a clothing store, it had a liquor store, and it had a restaurant. The liquor store and the restaurant were ours. And my parents, whenever they could, they put family members to work. Any family that was looking for work, come on up to Chicago, we'll find you a job. I had actually been working at the liquor store since I was about 10 years old. In fact, I was there almost every day. So I knew how to open up, shut down, put on the alarm, etc. So on the 22nd, my parents are like, we need to head down to Houston to pick up your cousin. Uh, your cousin is looking for work right now, so we're going to bring him up. It was going to be like a quick trip down to Houston, which is about a 16-hour drive. Pick my cousin up and come right back up. Is it all right if we leave the liquor store and restaurant with you to, you know, to open up, to close up, clean out the money at the end of the day. Uh, and you're also going to have to pick up a couple of rents that are running late this month. Here are the unit numbers of those tenants. So for about two and a half days, I was going to be the landlord of this building. And it was pretty easy. I opened up, I closed up every few hours, took money out of the register, checked in with the cooks, waitresses, everything. And... On the 24th, at about 3 o'clock, I get a call, and it's my, my dad. He's like, hey, listen, we are in St. Louis. We're about eight hours away from Chicago. So I was like, okay, so you'll be getting here right around midnight. Uh, that's great, right, right before Christmas. Uh, no, no, we're not. There's a huge storm that is sweeping through, and there's no way we're going to be driving through this. Okay, alright, so uh, you're not going to be making it back in time for Christmas. No, no. So now, what used to be sort of a family rush to set everything up on Christmas Eve, now fell on me. So, I composed myself, put the phone down, I told my brother, say, listen, uh, mom and dad are not going to be back in time for Christmas. But that's okay, we're still going to have Christmas. So I quickly set up the tree. At that point, just up, you know, pull it out of the box, put some ornaments up, some lights, put it in the corner. Great. We don't have any gifts. There weren't any gifts. My parents, in fact, because it was only three o'clock on Christmas Eve, had not bought any gifts yet. So I had to rush out and buy gifts. I remember setting up a Sega Genesis for my brothers to play with, and I was like, "Listen, play some Altered Beast, and I'll be back in a little bit." Oh, where are you going? Where are you going? I have to go downstairs to the liquor store and the restaurant just to see how things are going because we're closing early tonight. 
I did go to the liquor store, the restaurant, but it was to take cash out of the registers. I remember taking about maybe a hundred, a hundred and fifty dollars out of the register, sort of checking with everybody. I'm like, yeah, I'm just pulling the money out. And then I just go shopping. Unfortunately, in a lower middle class neighborhood on the south side of Chicago, your options are kind of limited. So I remember hitting up a Walgreens, I remember hitting up a Woolworths. There was a layaway store nearby that was still open. I remember buying things not on layaway, so that kind of surprised them. I just sort of bought them outright. And so I had now a collection of board games, I bought some action figures, bought wrapping paper and bows and all of that. I mean, if you're going to do a Christmas, you have to do it right. So I come back home, sneak in, and I start wrapping up all the gifts in, the, in my parents' bedroom. Now it's all put away. Great. They're still playing Sega. Now, at this point, it's about 6 o'clock. And then I start thinking, okay, we need to prepare dinner. I should have thought of this sooner because at this point now our restaurant was closed, so I had no way of getting food from our own restaurant. Cooks had left. Everybody's gone for Christmas. So then I start thinking, all right, what do we like? What is our favorite food? Now, I know it seems odd uh, for a Mexican family to have a favorite food like this, but we loved T-bone steaks. Like we just loved them. For some reason, that was our favorite food. So I'm like, guys, put your shoes on, put your coats on, let's take a walk. We start walking down 18th Street in Pilsen. And I remember it being pretty cold with the wind starting to pick up. We go into a store called La Casa del Pueblo, a big Mexican store, and I see in the freezer section T-bone steaks. I'm like, great, I'm going to take two of those because that should be enough for my brothers. I'll get some canned corn, I'll get some canned peas, and I'll get some cupcakes and cake. Oh, and I'll get some chocolate to make some hot chocolate. So I get all of this, and now we're walking back together. It's about a five to six block walk. And as we're walking back, it's now a little bit darker, it's a little bit colder, and suddenly it started snowing. And not like heavy snow, not like big flakes, but that little thin glittery snow where it falls just soft enough for the lights, the city lights to reflect off the flakes. And I just remember thinking, this is beautiful. I mean, you're talking to a guy when he was 12 years old, cried when Silent Night was playing as it was snowing outside. I was 12 and I was listening to Silent Night and I just started bawling on Christmas Eve. So of course, walking in the snow on Christmas Eve with my brothers was also a very, very special moment. I was just trying to take it all in. All right, guys, go play because your big brother's going to make some dinner. Now, being 15 and the son of restaurant owners, I did not cook very much. I never had to cook, but how hard can it be? So I turned on a, uh, I turned on the, the flames, I put a frying pan on, and I didn't even let it warm up. I remember just opening up the, uh, the packaging around the frozen T-bone steaks and just plopping them on the pan. And, uh, you know, and I'm all excited. I'm like, okay, all right, this is going to be all right. This is going to work out. So I walk back to my brothers, and then suddenly we start to uh, smell smoke. And I don't think there's anything unusual about this. I'm just smelling smoke. So then I head back out, and that's when I see the kitchen is full of smoke. And now the smoke has slowly made it out through the vents into the rest of the apartment building. And at this point, 
the fire alarms start going off everywhere. And I'm like, oh my god, okay, this is horrible. All the tenants come out, and it, it wasn't any fire alarms that called in the fire department, right? It was all just sort of we had to get up and, and turn them off. And they're all talking about, are you okay? Are you all right? What's going on? I'm like, no, 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 everything's going fine. They're like, where are your parents? And I was like, they're out Christmas shopping. They'll be back. I kind of didn't want to give away that we were just a bunch of kids alone trying to cook. Once everybody was at ease, I went back in. It was a complete loss. No T-bone steaks that night. So we kind of ate our canned corn and our canned peas and our cupcakes. And so that was our Christmas Eve dinner. I then told my brothers, guys, it's time to go to bed. It's Christmas. Santa's coming tomorrow. And of course, my four-year-old brother still very much believes in Santa. So he's like, okay, all right. And we all slept in the same bed. And uh, at that point, because we had such a small apartment, my bed was actually in a corner of the living room. So we all slept in that bed together. At about 2 a.m., I wake up. I walk over to the kitchen. I heat up some milk and make some hot chocolate. I go back into the master bedroom. I pull out the gifts. I bring them out. I put them under the tree. The hot chocolate's ready. I didn't mess this one up. This one actually came out pretty good. Turn everything off. I pour three cups of hot chocolate, put them over by the Christmas tree. And at that point, one of the uh, higher channels on television had Christmas carols going on. Like, and I, I knew this already, of course, because Christmas was my thing. I put that on, and I woke my brothers up. And I said, hey, it's Christmas. Santa came. So the four-year-old just pops out of bed. The 10-year-old, also as excited, right? Because uh, I think at 10, you still have that tiny doubt in your head. Of, you know, you're sort of getting a clear perspective on what reality is, but I think you want to hold on to some of those ideas from your youth. And so he gets up excitedly, and we go to the tree, and we open our gifts. And Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, board games, drinking hot chocolate, it's snowing outside. It was beautiful. Uh, it was just great, and I'll never forget that Christmas. I feel like I was able to preserve the magic of Christmas for one more year for my brothers, in a year when they could have completely lost what it actually meant. And it really meant a lot to us, right? We were always together all the time, and this year really solidified our relationship and really brought us even closer together. I'll never forget that I also had gifts for my parents. I remember uh, I bought a doll for my mom because she said she never got a doll as a kid. And I bought like a Michael Jordan poster for my dad and you know that was waiting for him under the tree as well. Later, Christmas Day, in the afternoon, about four o'clock, they roll in and completely surprised as to what they saw before them. And they didn't buy gifts, I remember. Like they just didn't have time and they apologized and I just told them, don't worry about it. I took care of everything. Merry Christmas. And yeah, that was my favorite Christmas ever. Yeah, 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 yeah
Thank you guys, thank you for coming out. In about two weeks, I'm gonna be headed to India. And it got me thinking that um, almost every holiday season, for as, as long as I can remember, my family has been taking this annual trip to India. And now, every holiday season across the world, there's this sort of mass exodus, this reverse migration, if you will. Indians come out of the woodwork, like my father, and they all get on planes and go back to the motherland to visit their mothers. Now, I'm not from India, I'm from London, as you can maybe hear, but my family has been making this trip ever since I was a kid. And the trip itself is something of an experience. I mean, just imagine being trapped in a small metal airplane tube with 350 Indians for 12 to 15 hours. You can get the picture. But then you land, as we do, we land in Bombay. I'm going to use the old term Bombay as opposed to the new state nationalist influenced term Mumbai as both a political and a personal preference. But we land in Bombay, and Bombay is a complete sensory overload immediately. I mean, the sights, the sounds, the smells, and everywhere you go, Bombay seems to be arranged around contrasts. You have slums nestled amidst the foundations of billion-dollar high-rises. You have Maybach Benzes idling at red lights with the tinted windows up and Beyonce blasting next to wooden carts piled sky-high with vegetables that are being drawn along the street by a skinny man chewing a beetle leaf. And you've got languages and, and cultures and ethnicities, religions. There's Genders, the third gender, the hijras, which are essentially transvestites, has just been recognized by the Indian government, which is a little dubious considering their recent record on, on sexual openness. But they, these hijras also have the dubious ability to go around the town levying curses on anybody, and thus they're able to extort bribes out of anybody so that they don't curse your family. <laughs> Trannies, right? Um, but, you know... Then imagine all of this plus Christmas. All right, so you have like palm trees that are hung with this cotton wool snow that sort of grays and sags in the heat and pollution. And you've got these skinny Santas in these huge oversized Santa Claus costumes. They're like brown skin sweating under big puffy white beards. And then everywhere you go, you incessantly hear these Christmas carols, like, um, We wish you a Merry Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas, or a joy to the world, the Lord has come. Like whole congregations vowing that no year will hear the coming of Christ. <laughs> now, as a kid, I used to get a kick out of this stuff. It was pretty funny. One time my family, I remember on Christmas Day, went to McDonald's and ate Mutton Max. Um, it was all pretty amusing, but the older we got, and as I kind of like got into adolescence, getting dragged every year to this country where even though I had family friends there who, and people that I loved very much. I had no connection to India. I had no knowledge of Bombay. And once you're hitting 13, 14, getting into adolescence, you don't want to be surrounded by family nonstop, with no escape, with nowhere to go, no bike to jump on, to drive to a friend's house. 
I mean, we would get dragged, and we still get dragged every year to these Christmas parties, these family Christmas parties where women draped in saris wear their philanthropy as flashily as their Cartier watches. I remember this one woman, uh, this friend of the family, who at this one Christmas party every year, she takes around this group of blind orphan boys to sing Christmas carols to the different tables. They're like sort of looking askance, like singing Vivisio. Merry Christmas. I mean, the only good thing about it is that luckily they can't see the looks of horror on all of our faces. Um, but to me, the drive, the pull, the passion of going to India has always been my grandmother. I, I call her Nanu because of an infantile inability to pronounce her real name, which is Naju. But my grandmother and I get along like a house on fire. We're kindred spirits. She introduced me to my love of the theater. She unabashedly calls me her favorite, and I unabashedly accept it. And about maybe 15, 18 years ago, kind of at this time that I'm talking about, the beginning of adolescence, my grandmother started going through a really awful thing that you wouldn't wish on anyone, watching both her husband and her son die at the same time under her roof. And she would spend hours at her prayer table, uh, which was a marble top table in her dressing room, atop which were many different pictures of family and relatives from all over the ages. And she would stand there and light candles and say prayers. And it was also sort of around this time that my parents, deciding that the kids had maybe just like had their fill of Bombay Christmases, and also my father maybe needing a much well-deserved break from the pall of death that hung over his house, that my parents decided to take us to a beachy holiday in the beach paradise of Goa. And I remember we all packed up and got on a plane, and I remember being in the airport and getting picked up by the van that the, that the hotel had sent, and getting driven to the hotel with the incessant Muzak versions of Vivisio Medicismus and Joy to the World running on repeat in the van, and I just remember feeling this insufferable presence of family closing in on me. I mean, not only you know, was I in India, in Bombay with my family, but now I, I was going on this beach vacation in this small hotel with my parents. I just wanted a moment to myself, a, a little privacy, a little independence. And instead, I was headed into a week of sharing a bed with my brother and a room with my sister and a hotel suite with my parents. Now, I was probably about 12, and also sort of coming into my sexual awakening and kind of figuring out that maybe just maybe I might like boys. I mean, I poured my way through all of the sex ed books that I could get my hands on, avidly reading the sections about guys, all which were prefaced with the disclaimer, hey girls, I know it's you that are reading this. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, I had had, you know, in-depth discussions with friends about masturbation and tips and techniques and tricks. We had always settled on the really great thing that, thank God, we couldn't ejaculate yet. I mean, pff, who wants to deal with that? We could do it, no cleanup. It was amazing. Um, and despite the huge amount of titillation that I definitely derived from these discussions, up to this point in my life, nobody, save me, had ever touched my penis. So here we are at this Christmas bedecked resort replete with empty boxes wrapped in shiny paper and, and, and you know, twinkly lights hanging off of palm trees. And there's really nothing to do. There's like mini golf and a shipwreck somewhere. 
So one day my dad, probably to assay my visible boredom and maybe his, he decided to get a massage and he said to me, look, why don't you come along and you can sit and we can chat while I get this massage. I said, okay. And we walked along the sort of uh, planked paths, these little walkways that took you through the property and we got to this little hut, which is where the massage treatments took place. We stepped in and I remember being immediately overpowered by this smell of like sandalwood and rose. It's this sort of earthy herbal smell mixed with this fruity floral one. And my dad went into the back to, to change and I sat down and endeavored to look sort of as grown up and over it as possible. It, it was a small room, dimly lit in the middle, there was a massage table. Um, there was sort of bamboo walls and a thatched roof, I remember. And in the back, there was a little changing area with a shower. And in the room, there were two people. There was a woman. I think she was like a trainee or observing or something like that. And then there was the masseuse. He was Indian. He was probably about 40-ish years old. He had long, dark hair. Uh, and he had these big arms and hands, uh, tools of the trade, I suppose. And a white shirt, which was maybe hiding a little belly, I really don't know. And he had this open face, this sort of face that you could kind of read anything or nothing into. So there I was sitting in this room with these two people. We're in Goa, which by the way is where the majority of Indians, India's Christian population lives. So let's just call them Mary and Joseph. And we're sitting in this room and suddenly my dad walks out of the back room and I am completely shocked to realize that he is naked. Now, I'm from a pretty hippy-dippy family. Seeing my parents naked is not a huge big deal. That's not what shocked me. But the idea that he was going to get a massage from this guy with no clothes on, no underwear on even, that this man was going to lay his hands on my dad's naked body, that blew my mind. So I sat there for a while, and we chatted away, and then, you know, ultimately I got bored. I mean... Honestly, how long can you sit in a room and watch your dad get a massage? But I left, and I knew immediately that I had to have one of these massages. <laughs> oh, yes. No matter how, no way, no how, I was going to get my naked body touched. So, you know, it's funny. This is the first time that I'm telling this story, and I remember some point uh, my mother having mentioned to me that she thought it was weird that I got this massage or that it was odd or that she was uncomfortable with it. I don't know how it came up because I really haven't told this before. But um, I booked it myself and uh, <laughs> put my foot down. This is what I want for Christmas. Um, and... And I remember setting off, walking down these little plank paths um, back to, you know, Mary and Joseph's hut. And as I walked up, I just remember thinking, you know, please God, please God, let Mary not be there. And praise baby Jesus, she was gone. Christmas miracle, it was just me and Joseph. My plan was going awesome. So I, I go into the back room, I take off my clothes, and immediately I have a hard-on. May, maybe this is where the humiliation theme actually dovetails. Although it was a pretty nice dick for a 12-year-old, I must say. Um, but, um, and look, I don't know anything about masseur protocol. But 
I do know that if there is one country in the world where the customer is always right, <laughs> that country is India. And you can order five-star food delivered right to your door. You can tell a chef to, you know, use butter or oil or any combination thereof. I've seen people send toast back. <laughs> toast. So, you know, maybe even if it was massage protocol to politely decline to give a massage to a man who is sporting a full-on boner or, well, a 12-year-old boy. In India, I'm not surprised that nothing was said. And honestly, it cannot be massage protocol because seriously, I would be hard-pressed to hear of any man here, gay, straight, no matter what, who has not popped a boner at some point during a massage. I mean, come on, it's just impossible. But it's also not relaxing. And whether you're trying to make it go away by ignoring it or by paying attention to it, it seems to be the only thing that one thinks about. So there I am, I start face down and he's massaging my back and my legs and my ass and I'm sort of awkwardly maneuvering, my boners poking into my stomach like something out of Alien. And I'm like trying to maneuver between having my penis end up in his hand and having it not or like faking like I'm having it not but then oops it did. Um, and then you know, lo and behold the moment comes where he's like okay sir turn over and there was no escaping it it's right there and he sort of starts on my legs and you know is not paying any attention to it but I just couldn't take it you know I just could not wait anymore I needed to know am I gonna get my first hand job right now or not So I opened my eyes and staring down at my straining sixth grade cock, I asked the man, do you do penis massage? <laughs> Not my best line, but pretty good for a middle schooler. And he responds, yes, you want? I said, yeah. <laughs> So he doesn't start straight away. He sort of, you know, finishes up my legs as if anybody gave a shit about the legs at that point. And then he reaches over and he grabs more of his massage oil. And I realize in that moment, that's this smell. This sandalwood, rose, sticky, sweet, smoky smell is this massage oil that he's been using. And he sort of pours it on my crotch and, you know, starts jerking me off. Now, I'll spare you all. Because you're all desperately uncomfortable as is and you don't need to hear the minute details of a sixth grade boy getting a hand job by a 40 year old man <laughs> but you know let's just say I came well I mean I didn't because I couldn't but I finished which I then had to tell him because he didn't know and I was like oh no 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 I'm done I'm finished <laughs> I think he was a little weirded out and now Contrary to what you may be thinking, and certainly to what I hoped, I didn't feel amazing. In fact, I felt really scared. I mean, not scared that this guy was going to do anything. He was harmless. He was just doing his job, I guess. <laughs> but I felt scared because I suddenly felt so alone. You see, this whole holiday, I'd been 
looking for a private moment, right? Like searching for some little private grown-up moment that I could call my own. And now I had it, and I didn't want it, and I couldn't give it back. And it wasn't really about what I had done, you know, about whether I thought it was a bad thing or a good thing. That wasn't really it. It was more the feeling that I had this secret that I could never, ever, ever share with the people who up to that point in my life I had been closest to. It was almost the beginning of having a dual life. I mean, maybe, maybe that's just becoming an adult. But it felt too soon. Maybe it always does. I remember the end of the massage in flashes. He like sat me on the edge and poured some more of that fucking oil on my head. And then I went into the back and I like tried to shower it all off. And of course I couldn't get it all off. And, and then I remember I walked out into the room again and he was tidying up and sort of, you know, passingly mentioned that there would be an extra charge for the uh, penis massage. And I freaked out. I was like, oh my God, this cannot show up on my parents' hotel bill. And I told him, well, you know, you should have told me this before. And he sort of said, okay, fine, forget about it. You know, all in a day's work. <laughs> and I went back to our little hut, the little suite that we were staying in. I remember my mom gave me a hug and a kiss. And that gesture, which two hours previous, I would have repelled against I would have found so annoying at this point it almost didn't touch me I almost didn't feel it it was like this secret suddenly had put this barrier this blockade between me and my family when they checked out of the hotel I remember standing right by my mom and like craning my ear and thankfully there was no mention of uh, what is this hand job charge <laughs> so um, my secret stayed safe with me but we went back to Bombay to pack up our stuff and to say goodbye to my grandmother. And I remember standing in front of her prayer table in her dressing room, and she lit a dia, which is like a candle. And she, this is something that she's always done whenever we leave the country. She lights a candle, and it burns sort of nominally the duration of the flight that it takes for us to get home, blessing my family's passage. And I stood there and she held me in her arms and stroked my head and said the words to some prayer that I don't understand. And all I could smell was this sandalwood and rose. All I could think about. And then I realized my father, liking the oil so much, had bought a bottle of this massage oil and given it to my grandmother. <laughs> And it was sitting there on her prayer table with many other gifts for many different family members where she would leave them. And as I left the room, knowing the answer, I asked her, do you mind if I take this? And she said, no, it's fine. And I put it in my backpack and we all packed up and my family all squeezed into a car and headed off to the airport. And there we are driving along the moonlit streets of Bombay. They're still bustling. They're still crowded. My family's squeezed into the back of this car. I still feel somehow alone and separate. I'm squished between my brother on one side and the window of the car on the other side. And I can still smell little whiffs of this fucking oil. And so I reach down with my hand and very surreptitiously, very slowly, I sort of pull the bottle of oil out of my backpack and I calmly roll down the window and I stick my hand out 
and I dropped the bottle of oil onto the hot, trash-strewn, dusty streets of Bombay, and it rolls away, and I remember sitting there, just hoping never ever to smell that feeling again. Thank you. This hotel is cheap and the pillow stink and there's not a single thing to say it's Christmas Eve or St. Nicholas I know I ain't in your list but if you're listening I need a bus ticket I came through Montreal I lost a lot of dough could find no honest job so I did some other ones got into trouble and I had to run or suffer And then a long road Into a long December This is Risk This is Hey Rosetta Behind me now And we just heard from Satya Baba Telling a story beautifully there at the Risk Live show at the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles. We do it once a month at Nerd Melt, every fourth Thursday. And now... Oh my God, what just showed up on my phone? What on earth? It's my favorite band, the Webmasters. They've sent their latest single, gang. Oh, such a Christmas treat. Well, it's called Create Your Own Website, and I'll be horn-swoggled if I'm not pressing play now. Hit it, guys! Everything you need to create an exceptional website. Squarespace.com Squarespace.com And you can drag and drop your images to upload. With Squarespace.com, your site will look great on any device. Building state-of-the-art web pages and blogs has never been easier. So try Squarespace.com today! Today! Oh, dear God, my lungs. That was just a delight. I couldn't agree with them more. Listen, the design templates at Squarespace are gorgeous. So for a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code RISK1. That's RISK and the numeral one. In just a bit, we will hear from the comedic genius that is James Adomian. But before that, one of the most beloved characters of the New York storytelling scene, the lovely Miss Leslie Goshko, with a story we call The $100,000 Man. 
Before my husband and I moved to New York, we had this whole life set up for us in Tulsa where we were living. He was an English teacher. I was a musical theater instructor. Full-time salary jobs, benefits. We had teacher's retirement fund. We had a paid-for car. Our one-bedroom apartment cost $400 a month, which is insane. It was just this very comfortable life that we had all set up that if we wanted it would have been lovely. And in 2006, I happened to win an internet dance contest, which put me on the Broadway stage with the cast of Hairspray. And it was an amazing experience. And so I'm in New York and I'm dancing on Broadway and I'm thinking, why do people complain that it's so hard to make it here? Like it's so easy to attain your dreams. So I came up with the great idea. This is so easy. Let's sell everything we have and move to New York so I can be famous. on board he's like yeah this is pretty awesome you know being in suites overlooking Times Square you know watching you perform on Broadway they had a newscast that followed it was very like just getting whisked away and so he was kind of like yeah we can do this so we sold the car we took out the teacher's retirement fund and the plan was that I was going to be a Broadway star And my husband, who had a blog, he was going to be a New York Times bestseller. And immediately upon parking our moving van outside the apartment building, a homeless man came up and assaulted us with Rolling Stone lyrics. And then we went up into the apartment and a pipe burst in the ceiling of the bathroom, flooding our 300-square-foot studio. And then just when I think like things can't get any lower, I go downstairs to get like my last box of stuff, and this dog lifts his leg and just pees all over the rest of my stuff. So what ended up happening is like in the weeks and months that followed, all I was doing was waiting, like waiting in lines to get to auditions, waiting in waiting rooms to get seen. Like, I was not getting seen, and when I did, it was just like, next, next. It was just so hopeless. At this point now, like, I've been involved in a robbery in New York where I, like, had to go do a lineup and all of that stuff. I've seen someone die in the park. My husband was working a night shift for, like, $10. It was horrible. And so that's the most broke we've ever been in our lives. We could only afford to eat beans and rice. And the low point came, we were sitting on our futon, and this mouse comes out, roots through our trash, there's no food in the trash, comes out and then just sits on the floor and stares at us, just like pity. So I was like, I have to get out of this apartment. And so we couldn't afford to do anything. So I was always looking in like Time Out New York for the free stuff. So I asked my husband, I was like, hey, do you want to go to Bryant Park to see the Broadway singers and the ice skaters? And he was like, no, I'm going to skip out on the Broadway. And I was like, fine, I'm going to go. And I get my stuff and I head to Bryant Park. And I'm just like already angry. I'm just already angry at being broke and mice in my apartment and not making it and not doing anything. And I get to Bryant Park and it's just that New York mob scene where everyone is there and you're just, you know, pushing your way through. 
it's so close. Everyone is just so packed to where this woman who was standing behind me, anytime she moved, her hand would just touch my ass. So it was just touching my ass. T- and I turned around. And I was like, if you don't stop it back there, I'm going to have to start charging you for what you're doing. And she's like, whoa, <laughs> calm down. This is the season. And I'm that person. I'm that angry person. Like, why did you come out? So this guy is in front of me, like a classic... I'd say New York guy, but he was in Jersey. But he just seemed like that kind of old world, you know, classy guy. And also, I do have, like, this penchant, like, this special soft spot for old people. Like, I love old people. I always have, like, when I was young, I used to go, you know, sing songs at nursing homes. Like, he would have totally been, like, someone that I would be like, oh, I'm going to see Henry because it's Thursday, and Henry hangs out in the park on Thursday, and we're going to go play checkers. Like, I totally could see like that relationship happening and he keeps turning around turning around I can't see anything it's so packed and he turns around finally again and he goes I'm sorry miss I can tell that you're not really enjoying yourself would you like my spot I can see everything I was like no I don't want it because I'm committed to being angry you know (laughs) like no I'm no I don't want it he goes no no please take it and he just pushes me into his spot and It is a great spot. Even just one person spot difference. Like, I can see things. I can see the skaters. The Broadway singers are singing. The tree is there. And for a minute, like, I kind of forget all the crap that's been leading up to this. That maybe my gamble isn't paying off. Like, right now it's just like a nice, magical New York moment. I stay there for a while, and then I'm ready to go. It's getting cold. And so I turn around to the guy, and I was like, thank you very much. You know, I I appreciate it. Here's your spot. I said, I have to leave. And he's like, oh, well, I have to leave too. So we wiggle our way out of the crowd. And right before I leave, I tell him again, I'm like, thanks so much. You know, I really, I really appreciated that. And he's like, no problem. He goes, can I just tell you something? He goes, I just want to let you know that I think you're a very beautiful woman. And like with my puffy, like rice bloated face, like it was just what I needed to hear. I was like, thank you. Thank you so much. Like I just need something nice to happen. And then he goes, I'd like to offer you $100,000 to sleep with me. I was like, what say that again (laughs) because he looked like such a cute old man like a little shoe cobbler not like the ghost of christmas prostitution so i say excuse me he goes yes i'd like to offer you one hundred thousand dollars to sleep with me and like i'm looking at him and it's kind of like the beans and rice that i've been eating are like dancing in his eyes saying like do it do it take the money and then i was like i'm married i'm married and without skipping a beat he's just like oh that's okay everyone cheats kind of like that's your go get out of jail free like everybody knows you can do this and just the thought like think about like a hundred thousand dollars like that's a lot of money that's a lot of money especially when you have nothing and you've used all of your life savings that you had it was just so bizarre i mean it's like you're getting everything that you wanted handed on a silver platter it's like it's a christmas miracle but it's super effed up like it's like in the weirdest packaging it's like getting a diamond ring but you have to fish it out of like a pig carcass like it's it's like why can't it just be wrapped up normal and nice why do i have to like fist a fetal pig to get my ring i just want a box of money and i was like oh my god 
I, I have to leave, so I don't actually like consider this. So I was like, I, I have to go, I have to go. And, and he goes, well, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to the subway. He goes, let me accompany you. And I was like, ah, oh, damn, he's such a gentleman too. So we're walking, and the whole way to the subway, he's telling me about how he, of course, we would get the nicest hotel. He already knows where he would take me. We would get room service. He's an excellent lover. And I just like, keep walking, Leslie. Keep walking, Leslie. Don't do it. No money. <laughs> no money. And so we get to the subway stop. And he says, are you sure you won't reconsider? And I don't know why I said this next thing, but this is what I said. I go, listen, if we're both here next year, and we see each other, maybe we can talk. And I guess that seemed like a good idea. Like, I was trying to make this like a weird, like, if I meet you in Bryant Square Park, and you're still horny, and I'm still broke, (laughs) then we can make this work. So that seems like a good solution to him. So he takes my hand, kisses it, and he says, well, this was a lovely evening meeting you. And I get on the train, and I'm going home, And I'm trying to process, like, what in the world has just happened? And I get home to my little studio apartment. I open the door, and and my husband's there. And I go, you are not going to believe what just happened to me tonight. And I tell him the whole thing, everything, how it's crowded, and the guy, and the money, and this and that. And then he finally speaks. Oh, at least I'm not married to someone who's just going to, like, at the drop of a hat take off with some guy I think he was kind (laughs) of I hope he's happy (laughs) I've thought about this if I wasn't married would I have done it I don't know it might have been a whole nother story if if that wasn't the case I don't know god I would have so much money Kevin I were to offer you one million dollars for one night with your wife. I'd assume you're kidding. Let's pretend I'm not. What would you say? Well, I guess there's limits to what money can buy. He offered you a million dollars for a night with your wife? How could you negotiate without me? Never negotiate without your lawyer. Never! For a woman like Diana, I could have gotten you at least two million! This is, I'll just, I'll fall apart right now. So, uh, I do have a story about my shameful naivete as a younger, a young kid, uh, and even an old kid, because I'm going to talk about Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, Father Christmas, Kris Kringle, and how I believed in Santa Claus for an abnormally long time as a child. I was always a a smart kid, top of the class, straight A's, very funny. I got it. I knew what was happening. (laughs) Santa Claus, to me, there was a mythology, and I bought into it. And I don't know why my parents believed that they should keep up (laughs) the mythology as much as they did, but they really did. And uh, I combined that narrative with what I gathered from the newspapers. (laughs) 
and the, the available movies and television shows and con- snippets of conversations here and there, and I synthesized my own beliefs. At a young age, I, I went for the Hegelian dialectic, the, uh, the thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis. The synthesis was probably Santa. Now, as early as the third grade, I remember a music teacher polling our class of third graders who believed in Santa Claus, and I was in the minority of uh, one-third of us believed in Santa Claus. And all of my friends, like, turned on me and laughed at me. And, like, pfft, like I was, like, cool until that. And then it was like, now you're dumb, stupid. And, I, yes, I was always friends with bad kids. That was my crew. Like, the baddest kids I could find. And they, uh... <laughs> the, I su- any street cred I had with the bad kids was always ruined at the end of the the calendar year because I was like, no, I think Santa Claus is real because I had <laughs> I had evidence like I was fully conscious that many people didn't believe in Santa Claus like the bad kids like I knew there was like cynics and grumps out there um, and like smart asses and <laughs> all m- most adults. But I also knew that some adults who were really in the know had a, had a wink and a way of letting you know that mm, they, were, they were on the side of real truth. The true sages. <laughs> and I had, you know, I, I had my evidence. There were, I knew there were arguments against Santa Claus, but I knew every single rebuttal. Somebody was like, reindeer can't fly. I was like, well, uh, there were reindeer hooves on my cousin's porch last year and I saw them physically and I examined them uh, <laughs> they had tar and soot and snow and shit on that was reindeer hooves that, you can't reproduce that what did they ride all the way here I don't buy it your story doesn't stick together pal Santa Claus can't get all over the world all around in one night to deliver all these toys to children it was like yeah yeah He's got a network of helpers. We know this. I've seen the documents. <laughs> Plus, he's only going for Christians. <laughs> Santa Claus can't... You can't fly in a sleigh. There's no wings, no jet engines or propellers or anything. I'm like, I know that. That's, that I even thought that was the cover story for some other technology. This was the late period of the Cold War. Star Wars and NORAD I knew about from newspapers. I read science magazines and I thought some of that might apply to Santa Claus in our fight against communism. Um, The kicker was, it's just a story to fool little kids. And my answer to that was, yeah, well, I'm eight and I get straight A's. Um... So uh, that was my excuses. Then I, I, uh, I guess I was a full Santa Claus apologist. <laughs> I guess I'm like the Thomas Aquinas of like the North Pole. I believe in Santa Claus. Yes, when I was eight. Uh, a, that was 1988. That's a little bit too old. Uh, I also believed in Santa Claus when I was nine. Uh, he really made a great appearance that year. And when I was ten, when we moved from Georgia to Los Angeles, I still believed in Santa Claus. By, by then I knew that Santa wasn't real. I knew that the Santa that you sat on his lap wasn't real. I knew that part. I knew that there was like a network of helpers to, to keep this up. Um, there's a picture of me sitting on Santa's lap when I was 11 years old. 11 years old. 
way, way too, like, 10, see, you guys do it. You guys were like, 10, yeah, and then 11, you were like, what the fuck? You'll believe anything. Between the age of 10 and 11, I had grown suspicious because, uh, ki- you know, I got made fun of a lot. And, uh, I, you know, I saw that all of the movies and all of the news stories were like, Santa, ha, 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 he is real. So um, I asked my dad, I sat down with my father, and I was like, Dad, what's the deal with Santa Claus? I need to know this. Because I'm having some debates with people, and I, I want to know how to be armed with the right ammunition to beat them and sell the truth of Santa Claus. (laughs) So he laid it out. He laid out the case for Santa Claus. I don't know why. I think this was 11 going into the Christmas when I was 11. And uh, we took a walk. It was uh, probably December. We walked uh, around the neighborhood. And he was telling me like, "Uh, well, Santa Claus is a good man. There was a lot of self-compliments as I look back on it. a good man. He's not perfect. You know, he makes mistakes sometimes. He, uh... Santa Claus, I think he's a Christian man. I think he's a good... I, believe, I think he believes in God. He's honoring the memory of Jesus. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. I'll go with that. And I asked all the questions. I was like, Dad, how does Santa Claus get around the globe and stuff? He's like, well, he doesn't have to go everywhere. There's different time zones. And I was like, ah, yeah, time zones, right. <laughs> What about Japan? He doesn't have to go to Japan. They're all going to hell anyway. They're not Christians. Uh, <laughs> I was like, now, what about the, how does he know, like, the presence of, like, that's a supernatural ability. That he, my dad was like, he's not supernatural. My dad told me that it was passed on from person to person. Like, I was, like, inducted into, the, like, the, <laughs> the secret knowledge of... He might as well have opened up a book and blown dust off of it and been like, here is the law passed down. Um, but it was, like, advanced. It was like, the current Santa Claus knows what's up. They probably doesn't fly around in a sleigh. That's just for show. That was back when that was all they had. <laughs> so he he, like... My, res- my, my reservations were put at rest. He, he, he explained everything well enough. And uh, so I believe tentatively with some reservations in Santa Claus for Christmas of 1991 at the age of 11, a month away from being 12 years old. And now back to that photo I mentioned where I'm standing on Santa Claus's lap. What's not pictured in the picture is the reverse of it, which is a line of other kids waiting to sit in Santa's lap who are all younger than me. And I, then there was like uh, older kids who were kind of like, <laughs> Santa, I guess, or whatever. <laughs> that were even like a year younger than me. And, um, and then like a bunch of parents who were like, ha, 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 yes, yes, yes. And they'd see me and be like, what is this guy playing a joke or something? <laughs> so there was a lot of scoffing and like looking at me and I was like wait a minute I'm at the object of ridicule that's the ridicule is what got me I guess pulled me into reality uh, you know they say a lot about hey be nice don't ridicule people who are you know what ridicule is really good it, it pushes you into the truth sometimes <laughs> when nothing else works um, so I remember yeah, people looking at me and uh, I, sat on, I sat on Santa Claus's lap and I didn't I was like what is, I've was on the verge of not, I knew something was up. 
and I would sit on Santa Claus up, and I had three younger brothers, and one of them didn't even believe in Santa Claus. So this is like inexcusable. <laughs> so I'm sitting on Santa's lap, and uh, now this is maybe the difference between Los Angeles Santa Claus and Atlanta Santa Claus. Los Angeles Santa Claus was like he looked. He kind of had a vibe about him, where it's like, why are you, why are you here, kid? Like Santa himself, and I knew it wasn't Santa, but the guy, like the guy playing, I knew it was like, aha, yeah, Santa. I knew that part. Like, I know you're not Santa, but I'm still gonna do this because I think you're reporting back to him or something <laughs> to the hive uh, where you all come from. <laughs> but like, <laughs> Santa Claus kind of diplomatically mentioned growing up, and uh, <laughs> and uh, like. <laughs> It's like dying and going to heaven and seeing Jesus Christ. And he goes, I'm bullshit. That's what it felt like. <laughs> um, so I guess I, what, that, that, that didn't kick it over. But that same week, like right before Christmas or whatever, I found like a, ma- a magazine or newspaper article about when to tell kids that Santa's not real. And I saw it in print and I was like, well... The fourth estate has come down on the side of facts. I guess I'm with the newspapers because I like reading. Um, I want to say that my world was shattered by this, uh, but it wasn't really. I was just kind of excited and fascinated as like a learning experience. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. This new kind of fascinating look at the culture and myths. What is this? I already knew that Zeus and Diana and... uh, Apollo weren't real but then I added Santa Claus to that pantheon and then later now in my recent years I now do believe in Apollo and Dionysus and shit Um, like literally Um, but uh, I was fascinated with the idea that they had pulled this trick on me and I thought it was kind of cool so I accepted it easily I felt like the myth of St. Nicholas, you know, it wasn't malicious. I was like, wow, they got me. I, nothing fooled me besides this. And I saw Santa Claus for what it was, like just an amusing diversion meant for children and magical people, like a diversion from the true spirit of Christmas and the eternal truth that Jesus Christ, the physical incarnation of the God of the universe, was born into our world somehow to save us in a ritual human sacrifice. And that I believed in until I was 25, which is (laughs) almost as embarrassing as (laughs) believing in Santa Claus until I was 11. So uh, now I just sort of celebrate the myths and maybe, who knows, after I die, I'll go, I'll see Santa Claus and we'll have a big fucking laugh at the Temple of Dionysus. Thank you for listening, folks. Trojan horse, she galloped into Troy. I'll be happy 
For this episode, folks, this is Frightened Rabbit. Behind me now, that was James Adomian. We just heard, listen, January is an enormous month for risk shows. The first one is happening on the 11th at Fontana's in New York for NYC Podfest. We have Keith and the Girl and Alex Edelman. And then on the 23rd in New York and Los Angeles, we'll have our usual shows. Adam Wade and Brad Lawrence and Lori Baird will all be at the New York show. In L.A. on the 23rd at Nerdmount, we have John Flynn and Brandy Barber and more. And then on the 31st, we are at San Francisco Sketch Fest with Dana Gould, Stephen Tobolowski, Nato Green, and Brendan Walsh. San Francisco. Get to that show or so help me. I will be disappointed you missed it. Now, very important. If you have been thinking of maybe doing something new in 2014, put a little effort toward learning how to connect with others. Engage in a creative exercise that's fun and illuminating. Shed some of your inhibition chip away at some of those habits that come from social anxiety, then you really should think about joining us for a workshop at thestorystudio.org. In New York and Los Angeles, there's so many starting in January. Here's a brand new one. We're so excited. It's in LA. It starts January 21st. It is storytelling for the page. Making Your Story a Personal Essay with J. Keith Van Stratton. In case you've ever thought of sending something into Huffington Post or Salon or Slate or what have you. On January 25th in L.A., Beowulf Jones will be doing another one of his two-day storytelling workshops. The first two people have absolutely loved. In New York, we have so many coming up. We have a two-day with me on January 11th, a six-week session with Don Fraser starting on January 14th. Such an inspirational teacher. On the 15th, we have another storytelling for personal growth with me and Dawn. For people who, you know, feel super new to public speaking or would like to work on some shyness issues or are interested in looking within in a sort of constructive way. And that's just the first half of what we're offering in January. So do go to thestorystudio.org. Look at our workshops, and they include one-on-one Skype sessions with me for anyone anywhere in the world, and of course our corporate workshops at thestorystudio.org. Don't forget, Risk is a Maximum Fun podcast. We're thrilled to be a part of the wonderful Maximum Fun network, and like all the shows there, We are listener-supported. We very much need your help to keep this going. So go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and make a contribution to us. Be sure to earmark it for risk. Whew! Happy New Year, everyone. Folks, this year's the year. (laughs) Take a risk.
Squarespace.com. <laughs> <laughs>